Today's reading comes from Genesis 44. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Then Judah went up to him and said, When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs to evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if you do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. If you uh, watch the Super Bowl on Sunday night, you probably realize we love comebacks. For those of you who didn't, the New England Patriots were playing the Atlanta Falcons and halfway through the third quarter, they found themselves down 28 to three. But then something happened, something changed. The team that played the rest of that game was a very different team than played the beginning of that game. They go on to score, score 31 unanswered points, win the game in overtime, and Tom Brady uh, wins a record fifth Super Bowl. But the thing that it taught us is we love comebacks. I had some friends that started the night as Atlanta Falcons fans. They might have actually just been Tom Brady haters. Uh, but by the end of the night, they were New England Patriots fans. And see, the reason we love uh, stories of comebacks is because they're stories of transformation. Deep down in our heart, they point to a hope that we have that no matter how bad things are, even if it's late in the game, they might still be able to turn around. And see, the, the, the truth, the exhilaratingness of that truth is something that's haunted storytellers since the beginning of time. In fact, it's something that occupies our hearts today. It's why we love each one of these great comebacks and each one of the great movies and all of the underdog stories. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at a story of transformation. We're, um, it, it will be a, a personal one, though. It's a type of personal comeback. So if you are tracking with the, the New Testament, it opens up with a genealogy of Jesus. It's kind of a, a summary of all the personal stories that the Lord weaved together to bring Jesus into the world. And the fourth man that you find 
uh, in the genealogy is a man named Judah. It says that uh, his father is a man named Jacob and his son is a man named Perez. And that several generations later, Judah or Jesus is gonna be born into the family of Judah. But that's not how the story of Judah starts. If uh, you turn to Genesis 37, listen to the first words that are ever recorded out of the mouth of Judah. Verse 26, it says, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. And his brothers listened to him. See, the story of Judah starts out as him selfishly rallying his brothers to sell their younger brother, Joseph, into slavery. And so this morning, when we realize that, we're faced with this question, how in the world is that possible? How is it that uh, the Lord can take broken people and terrible stories and redeem them and transform them and form Christ in them? How does he take our lives and work it together to bring about redemption? In other words, how does the Lord uh, work together our sanctification? How does he bring it about? So we, for the last couple of weeks, we've been moving through a sermon series called Men for Good. We're looking at the story of Joseph, how he gets sold into slavery, but then rises to power. But as we've been working through the story, a couple of times that story gets um, interrupted by the personal story of Judah. So this morning, we're gonna take a step back, try to look holistically at what happens uh, with Judah. We're gonna be based out of Genesis 44, which Beth just read, but we're gonna be covering a lot of ground between 37 and 49. So if you wanna follow along, try to. If you wanna listen, just listen. But we'll, we'll be kind of running really quickly through his whole life. So again, uh, as we look at it, we're gonna be answering the question, how does the Lord form Christ in broken people? And to do that, we're gonna look at three things. First, we're gonna look at the nature of Judah's transformation. The second thing that we're gonna take a look at is uh, the means that the Lord used to bring that transformation about. And then the third thing that we're gonna take a look at is what is the fruit of that transformation? So first, uh, the nature of Judah's transformation. We, we already covered it, but the beginning of Judah's story could best be described as a type of selfish wandering, right? In his 20s, he uh, finds himself in this situation where he's rallying his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery because he's annoying and he wants to use it to make a little bit of money. And then when, jo when Jacob, his father, refuses to be comforted after this happens, what does Judah do? Judah wanders off and leaves the family. He goes and moves in with some friends and abandons the promises of God that were given to Abraham and Isaac. And then while he's down there living with his friends, he uh, finds a wife that he takes from the Canaanites. Those are people who worship a different God. And then over time, he has a handful of sons. And then after his wife dies, he finds himself publicly caught in a case of prostitution. See, we can identify with the story of, of Judah. Even if we haven't been caught in heinous, public, messy sin, for sure we know what it's like to wander. I can tell you for me, I know what it's like for my own selfishness to cause me to neglect the relationships that the Lord's given me. Or we've all experienced how sin can cause us to put distance between ourselves and 
other people. And that's what you see in Judah. You see his selfishness calls him to lead to neglect and to abandon. But his story doesn't stop there. It's, uh, if you fast forward to his 40s, suddenly you meet a different Judah. There's this, he's back living with his family. He's abandoned prostitution. And then we find this uh, really peculiar moment that we just read this morning where Judah is in a situation that's eerily similar to the first time we met him. His younger brother is facing slavery. And what does Judah do? Instead of being the one who sells his younger brother into slavery or tries to rescue himself, he tears his clothes, packs up his donkey, marches back to the prime minister of Egypt, and then pleads with him to allow him to exchange his life on behalf of Benjamin. So what you see in the story of Judah, the nature of transformation is that the man who first sold his younger brother into slavery becomes the Bible's first ever recorded act of someone giving themselves in exchange for another person. So what's it teach us? What do we see in the story of Judah that applies to us today and the nature of transformation? The first thing it teaches us, frankly, is it challenges the way we understand the Christian life. It teaches us that the Christian life isn't predominantly about heaven as a backup plan to dying. It also teaches us that the Christian life isn't predominantly about our comfort and avoiding bad things. It says that the intent and the purpose of God towards us in Christ is to actually transform our lives. We, uh, we all know Romans eight twenty eight. It's one of those famous verses that we love. It says that God works all things. You can probably finish it together for the good of those who love him, right? But we almost never talk about verse 29. It goes on to clarify the Lord's intent towards us by saying that he works all these things together to form Christ in us or to conform us to the image of Christ. If you guys are uh, readers and you like Tim Keller, um, he calls this a life quake. Listen to the way he describes it. He says, when a great big truck goes over a tiny little bridge, sometimes there's a bridge quake. And when a big man goes onto thin ice, there's an ice quake. Whenever Jesus Christ comes down into a person's life, there's a life quake. Everything is reordered. Nothing stays the same. See, that's what we see in the story of Judah is that he's a man who's not abandoned to his sin, but instead one that the Lord pursues to form Christ in him. And we see in the gospel that that's his intent towards us is to actually make us new. The second thing it teaches us is that um, this forming of Christ in us, this transformation, it goes beyond just confession. It goes all the way to repentance. So you see in, uh, in the story of Judah that um, not only is he grieved over what he did to Joseph and the way that the story plays out for him, but when it comes time for him to face the situation again, Judah actually lays his life on the line for Benjamin. His story actually changes. The third thing that it teaches us is that uh, transformation 
this forming of Christ in us is primarily a resurrection of the heart. That it may eventually or probably does lead to the change in our behavior, but fundamentally it's a shift in who we believe we exist for. It's a shift from a heart like the Judah of Genesis 37 that believes we exist to serve ourselves and we wander about feeling about how to accomplish that to a heart like the Judah of Genesis 44 that believes we exist to serve Christ and to give our lives in exchange for other people. The final thing it teaches us is probably the hardest. And it's that transformation actually happens, that it's actually possible. It means that I'm not stuck and you're not stuck and we're not stuck. And not only does it mean that it's possible, it actually teaches that it's to be expected. That when Jesus comes down to not change is what's abnormal. It's, uh, it's a sobering thought to think about the fact that the God who first created uh, this earth and this world by speaking it into existence now tirelessly and powerfully works to form Christ in you. That his intent towards you is nothing short of seeing the glorious image of Christ formed in you. So I'm gonna ask you first set a couple of questions. In your relationship with Christ, is it simply about heaven, about a backup plan for the inevitability of death? Or do you long to see yourself set aside your old self put off and to see Christ formed in you day by day. I wanna be just a little more specific with the professionals in the room. Those of you who have uh, careers and ambition um, and who the Lord's given amazing opportunities to. Are you happy just to have heaven as a backup plan, just in your back pocket, always there? Or do you long to see your talent and your gifts and opportunities that are given to you transformed into the image of Christ. So what we see in the story of Judah is that God's intent towards us in Christ is the complete transformation of our life. His intent is for nothing to stay the same. But we face the question, if that's his intent, if this transformation is not just possible, but expected, how does he bring it about? What does he do to actually work these things together in our lives? Well, in upper middle-class America, we're taught that transformation means progress. It means success. It means ensuring a more comfortable life for our children than our parents gave to us. And so what do we do? We look to things like education, training, opportunities. I just had a conversation yesterday with a man who was... um, debating, and I'm not taking a stand on this, I'm just saying it, debating the merit of sending their child to a state university in Florida that would cost like 10 grand or sending their child uh, to an Ivy League university in the Northeast that would cost 62 grand. And the words out of his mouth, and I'm not saying that I disagree with him, but the words out of his mouth were, it's worth it. It demonstrates how much we believe that there's these active things like education are, are what'll save us or what will transform us. But what about hard stuff? What about failure? 
Those things we view as negative. We view as the opposite of progress and we run from them and we hide them and we shun them. But this morning, what I want you to see in the life of Judah is how the Lord takes hard things and uses those to bring about our transformation. He uses those to form Christ in us. And so we're gonna take a look at two of them. The first one is hard things that we cause. And the second one is hard things that we don't cause, that happen outside of us. So hard things that we cause, things like sin and its consequences and our brokenness. If the Lord works all things together to form Christ in us, does that include my sin? So take a look back at the story of Judah. For, we already talked about it, but from his 20s on, we see the picture of a man with a hard heart who's wandering about. He, when his father won't just cheer up, he leaves him. When he moves in with a friend because they get along and uh, when that friend wears him out, he moves away to another city again. And when his daughter-in-law becomes an inconvenience, he sends her away. And then ultimately when his wife dies and he wants to be comforted, he finds himself in the midst of prostitution. He goes about from moment to moment, only looking for what's gonna satisfy him in the moment, but not really caring how it impacts other people. But then in Genesis 38, he finds himself in this really peculiar moment. All of a sudden, he finds himself publicly caught in both prostitution and civil neglect of his daughter-in-law. And what happens? In that moment, just like that, Judah cries out. He says, she, meaning Tamar, is more righteous than I am. See, it's, uh, this isn't so much an affirmation of Tamar as it is a personal lament of, of Judah. It's like he's saying this manipulative Canaanite prostitute is even better than I am. Right, he finally comes to the end of himself. And the reason this is so important is what you see next in the story is the next time we meet Judah, he's back with his family. He's given up prostitution. He, uh, and when it comes down to it, and he lays his life on the line for his family. See, what the story of Judah teaches us is that the Lord works together even our sin to form Christ in us. And the way he does it is that he doesn't punish us. He doesn't condemn us. What he does is he works it together to bring about the type of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But you and I, we're not capable of repenting on our own. We, we have to be worked over by the Lord himself and then have that happen through the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, forgive me if the analogy is a little too light, but for those of you who are basketball fans, you'll appreciate this one. 1989, I'm just a boy, uh, but Michigan is the favorite for the national championship. And early in the season, they find themselves with three seconds left behind by one to Wisconsin. Their star player, Ramil Robinson, gets fouled. He goes to the free throw line. And you're, if you're a Michigan fan, you're in the moment, you're going, this is it. You know, he, we're gonna we'll be rescued. Steps up to the line, first shot, clank, misses it. Okay, winning the game is off the table, but he can still tie it up. Steps up to the line, next, next shot, clank, misses the shot. Michigan loses to Wisconsin and falls lower in the rankings. But what happens next 
is Robinson begins to stay after practice every single day and shoot an extra 100 free throws. The distress, the sorrow that he felt towards his impact on the team caused him to behave differently. But what's interesting is it wasn't penance that he was doing. He was their star. He, wasn't, uh, he didn't owe anybody anything. What he was doing was there was a deep desire in him to never find himself in that place again. See, for him, sorrow led to repentance. But what's interesting is he does find himself in that place again. A couple months later, finds himself at the free throw line. It's the end of the game, except this time it's a national championship and it's overtime. They're down by one, steps up to the line. First shot, swish, tie ball game. Steps up to the line, second shot, swish. Michigan wins the national championship. So the lesson of the story is that sorrow is able to produce repentance. And what we see uniquely in the gospel is that it has the opportunity to create godly sorrow that leads to forming the image of Christ in us. So let's talk about... um, Sorry, I (laughs) found... Lost my place. Um, let's talk about how the gospel does that. Apart from Jesus, we're left only to try to control, only to be consumed by our sin, left only with the ability to ignore it or try to cover it up. We're stuck in this destructive cycle that we can't get out of. But what's beautiful is in Christ, in the gospel, in the finished work of Jesus, both on the cross and in the tomb, we can agree with him about our sin. And then we can look to Jesus as the one who ransomed us and we can turn to the Holy Spirit for power to help us with new affections and the ability to live a new life. See, the first thing we see in Judah's story is that the Lord uses even hard things that we create to bring about the image of Christ in us. That even in the gospel, your sin isn't just forgiven, but it's redeemed. But what about hard things we don't cause? Things like loss and death and pain. Sure, he works our personal stuff together, but does he work together these things that are outside of our control to form Christ in us? So flip back to the story of Judah with me for a second. And and what you see is uh, somewhere between his 20s and his 40s, Judah loses an adult son. And a couple years go by and he loses another adult son. And then a few more years go by and he loses his wife at a premature age. And these are hard terrible days for Judah. But you fast forward a little bit and you see the way the Lord redeems it. There comes a day when the survival of Jacob's entire family hinges on the ability for Jacob to send Benjamin down to Egypt. But Benjamin's young and Jacob can't send him with just anyone. He's already lost two sons and he's already lost a wife. And so Reuben the firstborn, the good one, the upstanding one, he steps up to help. And what does Reuben do? 
Reuben goes to Jacob and he says, look, I, I will take care of Benjamin. If I do not bring your son back to you safely, you can kill my two sons. See, it's exactly in that moment that Reuben demonstrates that he doesn't have the empathy that's required to help Jacob. This is completely unhelpful in the moment. You ever been there? You ever had someone going through something and you really wanna help them and you don't know what to do and it seems like everything that you say only makes matters worse? That's exactly where Jacob and Reuben find themselves. They're at an impasse. Jacob is stuck in the misery of facing either the loss of his youngest son or the, or the eventual death of his family. Reuben is stuck as one caught up in the midst of this, who his family's tangled up in it and his father is going through it, but he can't do anything to help. And then along comes Judah. See, Judah's already lost two sons and Judah's already lost a wife. Judah, out of a deep understanding of Jacob's grief, is able to look him in the eye and then offer himself personally as a pledge for Benjamin's safety. See, what you see is that in that moment, out of his deep, deep understanding of what Jacob is going through, Judah is able to be exactly what Jacob needs. Jacob finds someone who's willing to do what he would do, which is give himself in exchange for Benjamin if the worst came to the worst. And it's a really good thing that he does. It's an awesome thing that Jacob has Judah because he sends Benjamin down to Egypt and what happens? Benjamin finds himself facing slavery because of a mess that it seems like he got himself into all over something as dumb as a metal cup. And then Judah, unlike the rest of his brothers, or unlike he would have been in the past, out of deep, deep compassion for his father, out of a deep concern for his brother, and frankly, out of a desire to never experience the slavery of his younger brother ever again, packs up his donkey, marches back to the prime minister and begs to be exchanged. He would rather see himself go into slavery than see his father grieved with his, the loss of his youngest son. See, the, the way the Lord takes our pain and our sorrow and our loss and things like death and the loss of jobs and issues with homes is he uses them to create in us empathy towards other people who are going through the same thing. And then he takes that empathy and it launches us into mission. It launches us into love towards these other people. And the other thing it does is it makes us skillful. It makes us able to actually help them. In other words, it, it takes us and makes us able to actually want to and be Christ to other people in those moments. I give you a really personal example. Uh, I think you guys, I've talked about this before up here, but um, Jen and I have been through seven years of infertility. We, he saw him earlier this morning. We have a little boy who's three years old. His name's Caleb. Um, but along the way, we've lost two babies. And we, most recently, it was just this fall. And if you've ever lost a child, whether it is 
later in life or in the womb, it is a gut-wrenching thing. There is nothing that fixes it. There is nothing that soothes it. There is nothing that makes it worth it. There's times when you're in the middle of it that it's entirely terrible. The only thing you can do is just go through it. But then as you get, start to get to the other side of it, the Lord begins to redeem it. And what I've seen over the last seven years is I have watched the sensitivity and the skillfulness of my bride, her empathy towards other women begin to flourish. I've watched her come alongside other women who are going through hard things and sit with them and love them and pursue them and be patient with them. And then when the time is right, point them to Jesus. So what I've seen in our, just in our own home is I've seen the loss of two babies be redeemed by Jen's ability to now be Christ to other women in a way that wouldn't have been possible without it. See, the thing that the Lord wants to do is he wants to take our hard things, both our sin and the things that we don't cause and use them to form Jesus in us. That's the great truth of Romans 8, 29, is that our good is in our comfort and our good is in heaven. Our good is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this, this hard things that we don't cause, the redemption of it is uniquely possible in the gospel also. It's in the gospel that Jesus sympathizes as one who came down and experienced brokenness and death, sympathizes with what we're going through. And because we find in him a person who is serious about doing something about it, evidenced by the fact that he goes to the cross, and who is capable of doing something about it, evidenced by the fact that he rises from the dead, we can face into the hard stuff. We can face into it believing that there's a day coming when there won't be death or pain or tears anymore. And the other thing that the gospel does is when we come out to the other side of it, it also frees us up from this life to sacrifice on behalf of other people. We can take the hard things we've been through, be honest about them, lean into them, and then give them to other people. So what about you? Those of you who are going through hard things that maybe you caused, like sin, brokenness, has the difficulty of that led you to a deep sorrow that makes you actually want to change? Or is your sin still just an annoyance and an inconvenience, something you've learned to coexist with? And for those of you who are going through really hard things that you didn't cause, things like pain and loss and suffering, I am so sorry. What you're going through is not what Jesus intended for this world. It's not his plan for eternity. But what I do want you to hear this morning is that it will not be wasted. He takes every single one of our tears, puts them in a bottle, and then uses them, works them together to bring about the planned redemption of the world.
So before we close, uh, we talked about the nature of transformation, how it's about complete life change. It's ultimately a resurrection of the heart that leads to repentance. And we talked about how the Lord uses hard things, both things that we cause and things that we don't cause to bring it about. That his intent is to form Christ in us and that he is willing not to use education or training, but to use the hard things of life to do that. But before we break, I wanna talk about what is the fruit of it? If the Christian life is about more than heaven, is it also about more than us? And to answer that question, I want you to see two things in the story of Judah. Uh, First, let's take a look at the way that he uh, uses our lives, our personal transformation to set in motion community that endures and then has a lasting impact. So uh, after Judah offers himself in exchange for Benjamin, all the brothers go home free to Jacob. And then about 400 or so years later, when it comes time for the nation of Israel to settle the land of Canaan, the brothers come along to divvy up the tribes, the Lord superintending this. And the intimacy and the unity between the family of Judah and the family of Benjamin has so unfolded by this point that it's only natural to take Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, the whole family, the land that's allotted to them, and set it up inside the territory of Judah. That for the rest of the brothers, there was no, they were two different people, but there was no division between Benjamin and Judah. They were the same people. See, maybe you've experienced this in your community group. You're meeting together, you're starting to get to know one another, but honestly, you're not even friends yet. Maybe you're just acquaintances. And then someone goes through something hard. Maybe you're the one who goes through something hard. And then the love of Christ compels people to rally around you. They bear that burden with you. And then what happens? It knits you all together. This intimacy and this unity begins to form that gives birth to a community. And then it happens again. Someone else goes through a hard thing and you rally around each other and you're knit together a little more. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. And next thing you know, you wake up six months or seven years later and you realize you've become more than family. And see, the thing that's so important about this is when you think about what Jesus said, he said that the world, meaning your neighbors, this city, will come to know that Christ is from God when they see our love for one another. See, uh, Americans, we learn to keep to ourselves. We um, go it alone. We don't like to mingle with other people. A recent survey found that four out of five Americans spend no time with their neighbors. That in fact, even one out of three have never even met their neighbors. But when these people see y'all, who aren't family, who don't come from the same town, who don't have the same jobs, meeting together and loving one another and sacrificing on behalf of one another, they see Jesus and then they're drawn to him. See, the first thing that he does is he takes your personal story of transformation, launches it into love towards other people that builds a community that ransoms the world. Then the second thing that it does is it actually sets in motion part of the larger redemption story. 
So last time we'll look at Judah, but if you fast forward to Genesis 49, Jacob, he's on his deathbed. He's blessing his sons. He's basically doling out the promises of God. And along comes the promise of the coming Messiah. And if it's you and me, uh, who do you think that goes to? Obviously, it goes to the morally upstanding, persevering, uh, successful, hardworking, powerful Joseph. But it doesn't. The promise of the coming Messiah goes to Judah. And what's amazing about that is the personal transformation that led Judah out of deep love for his father and concern for his brother to give himself in exchange for his life becomes a sign for the nation of Israel that points to the greater Judah, that points toward Jesus, who out of deep love for his father, overwhelming concern for his brother, steps down into creation and actually gives his life to ransom an enslaved brother, which is you and me. If that's too abstract, a, a, a final example might help. Y'all know who Polycarp is? Don't worry, no one knows who Polycarp is. Well, Joe knows who Polycarp is, but and Micah does. Um, Polycarp is this bishop of the second century. And the thing that's so important about him, he is, uh, he's the first man that we believe is martyred after all the apostles die. But he's the anchor of the second generation of the church. He's the anchor of the very first generation of people that will believe the gospel after everyone who saw Jesus died. See, if Polycarp and the generation with him doesn't respond to Jesus, we're not here today. There is no church and the gospel hasn't redeemed history. But you know how Polycarp came to Christ? Jesus is walking down the shore of the sea one day, kind of like you might go for a stroll on the river walk, or maybe you go down to the beach. And off in the distance, he sees this young man fishing with his brothers and his father. It calls that man to come and follow him. And that man gets out, goes and follows Jesus. Over the next three years, he experiences this huge life transformation. The Holy Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost. And this man goes on to become part of seeing the gospel reach the known world. That man's name is John. And Polycarp is a disciple of John. See, my point here is that we don't exist today if Polycarp and the men like him don't respond to Jesus. And Polycarp doesn't come to Jesus if a young fisherman on his work break doesn't respond to Jesus. So I don't wanna stretch the analogy, but the point is, is that in our lives, the Lord takes our personal transformation and weaves it together into things that we can't even see. If we're lucky, we might just be able to catch a glimpse of them off in the distance. So what about you? How do you view the impact of your personal response to Jesus? Is it just a matter between you and him? Have you ever seen it in light of the whole generations of the church that'll come behind that decision? I just wanna be really specific with the parents in the room. When you make the choice day by day to sacrifice, to love the little broken sinners that are in your living room, 
Is that just a personal matter between you and Jesus? A matter of integrity and response? Or do you see it in light of the whole generations of history that'll be impacted by the lives of your little ones? See, the the Lord actually intends to redeem the city of Jacksonville. We believe that. It It is why we do what we do. It's why we plant churches. It's why we have community groups. But if we're really honest, you and I won't see it. Probably not. And our little ones probably won't even see it. But Caleb, our little three-year-old boy who was just up here, his son might see it. He might see a renewed Jacksonville that's a place of reconciliation that's flourishing in the gospel in a city that's been entirely renewed. See, listen, the, the Lord believes that this planet and this world still belong to him. And he is fully intent on redeeming it. He demonstrated his seriousness about it by coming and dying on the cross. And he demonstrated his ability to do something about it by rising from the dead. But you know what his strategy is? You know what his plan for the redemption of the world is? It's you. It's the church and the personal stories of our lives and the community that forms in our little responses to Jesus. And so he's intent on forming Christ in you. And you know how he forms Christ in us? Through hard things. Hard things that we cause, hard things that we don't cause, but ultimately he works it all together to form Christ in us and bring about the planned redemption of the world. Let's pray. Father, it is uh, your great plan to see this world renewed. And we are grateful that you didn't abandon us in our sin. And Jesus, we are grateful that you are the one who set the community of the Trinity in motion to pursue us, that we see that in you. We see the image of our pursuit in your love towards us. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us great grace to respond to you, that you would uh, not just Give us the sweet promise of the day when death and pain will be no more, but that you would animate our hearts towards a desire to see Christ formed in us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bring that about, that in your great mercy and your desire to point the nations in this world towards Christ, that as you do it, you would transform our lives. We acknowledge that you're the one who redeems us and that it's given to us to respond to you. And so we pray that you would make us a people that find sweet hope in your gospel, that find sweet hope in your love that pursues us. And so this morning and this week, and as we move into the rest of our lives, we pray that you would form us into the image of Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.